Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. I'm Kim Naoni, and this is Mentorship Matters, a podcast that examines the current and future landscape of fundraising leaders and the power of inclusive mentorship in advancement. Today, it's my honor and privilege to have my friend, Damon Sinensenuk, uh, founder and CEO of the Sunt Group, a consultant from Mexico City and a proud Florida Gator alumni. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me today, Kim. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, no, it's a great pleasure to have you here. It's always my pleasure to have successful people like yourself who want to give back uh, to uh, to the to to the universities that have given so much. And also, I I appreciate uh, using this platform to help pr- uh, practitioners that work in advancement, that work in alumni engagement, to understand why is it that alumni give back? Why is it that people want to go back to your campus and do things? So I thought it would be a great great uh, topic for us to discuss today. So uh, we'll start by asking you, what motivated you to give back to your alma mater? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the motivation behind anyone's reason for giving is varied. For me, um, I think mine stems back to a little bit of my personal history. So I'm a first generation uh, college student. Uh, My father immigrated from Thailand in his early 20s. Uh, My mom's originally from Connecticut, but uh, didn't go to college when she was younger. She actually amazingly went to college in her a little, a little bit later in her life, in her 60s, which is very admirable. But um, look, as a first-generation uh, American college student, I felt really, really privileged and really fortunate to have attended um, one, of the, one of the largest, most prestigious public universities in the U.S. And uh, I really empathize with other individuals that may uh, be in a similar situation, right? First generation Americans who, who may not have a lot of financial means mm-hmm. to, um, to participate. So that was a big motivator for me. And, uh, you know, giving feels good. And uh, it's a great connection back to the, um, uh, back to the university. Um, as you know, Universities are an incredible network of very smart, very talented, very influential people. And um, you know, after you graduate, there's not often a lot of ways to stay connected and stay um, an active participant. And giving right. allows you to be be part of that. No, that's uh, that's great. I can I can totally uh, relate to that because uh, I too am a first generation American and. Uh, when I came here, my parents didn't go to school in America, you know, so I had to figure things out. And what was really helpful was my alma mater, the University of Nebraska, uh, provided me that community. And uh, we had a wonderful, uh, you know, uh, group of advisors and uh, professors that really invested a lot in me and helped me in my American journey. And so when it comes to giving back, it's very hard for me to tell them no, because uh, <laughs> You know, I feel like I owe them a debt of gratitude for where I am today. So I, 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 I can totally rate with that. Um, why is it important? Now, you talked a little bit about it. So from an alumni perspective, why is it important 
uh, to uh, give in terms of time. I mean, you currently serve, uh, you know, on, on the University of Florida Alumni Board. You know, you fly back from Mexico almost every time there's a meeting. Uh, what benefits do you see in, in being part of that and in, in, in that experience? Yeah, it's a really fantastic um, perspective, which is very different than um, yeah, a student perspective. Uh, when you're, on, I suppose, the other side of the table, you get to see some of the, the big initiatives that the university is investing in, how those may impact and cascade down to other areas of the, of the university and its individual colleges. And so the goals and uh, the motivations behind the goals are, are made a lot more present and a lot more obvious. And um, it's really fun to again, like be a participant and help influence some of the decision-making, some of the outcomes and supporting a lot of those initiatives. That's incredible. What, 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 what's been your favorite initiative that you've worked on as an alum that, that, you, that you felt uh, really resonated well with you? Yeah, there's a couple. So last year I was on a, um, a work group, uh, the participation work group, which is all around how do we activate and enable individuals to give back to the university uh, more frequently and, and um, you know, over and over again. And it was really interesting to see like what types of initiatives resonated well with individuals. And, and um, for me, the, the contributions to some very specific programs like the Match and Opportunity Scholarship was, was really, really special because you get to see a little bit of yourself and the students oh, yeah. who, who received that scholarship. So that was really fun. And this year, I'm very fortunate to be on a committee uh, which is a regional director committee, and I get to interact with um, with Gator clubs and uh, associations around uh, the state of Florida, which is really special for me because as someone who's lived overseas and has been on the board of several Gator clubs, it's really, really fun to be on, again, the other side of the table that's supporting uh, the Gator clubs from a more centralized perspective rather than uh, sort of in the field perspective. Yeah, you kind of see, uh, as we call it, uh, the process of 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 making of making a sausage, right? You know, instead of just being on the other side, you're receiving it. Now you're there. You see, oh, so this is how it goes, and this, uh, uh, th this is what I can do as as a volunteer to help position these folks uh, to be successful because I've been there, done that. Now I'm on this side, so that becomes a really, really critical thing. So picture yourself you're in Mexico City somewhere, having dinner, drinks, and you run into somebody who's a fellow Gator. And uh, they're not, or whatever university. And they tell you, yeah, you know, I've not been involved since forever. That's not my thing. I'm busy with life. What would you tell them about the benefits? Because you got to sell them, you know, come on, I can do it. I'm a busy guy. You, you can do it too. Yeah. Look, like I mentioned at the top, um, everyone has their own individual motivations for giving back. But uh, one of the things that I've most recently uh, started getting into is a, a movement and a concept called effective altruism. Uh, it started by um, a gentleman by the name of William McCaskill. He's an Oxford uh, student and professor, ex-student and professor. And uh, it's a data-driven approach to giving. And uh, there's a lot of questions that the effective altruism concept asks, like, you know, what does the charity do and how cost-effective are they? How robust is the evidence, et cetera? But um, so he has a book called Doing Good Better, which runs through some of those formulas when assessing um, giving. But more recently this summer, I don't recall which month it, it was, August maybe, uh, he published another book, um, which is around the concept of long-termism. 
And I think the book's title is like, What We Owe the Future. And that really aligns well with what education and higher uh, learning institutions are looking to do, right? So one of the, one of the concepts around long-termism is just taking into account like, okay, it makes a lot of sense. It feels really good to give back to programs that have an impact in, in the very near future, this it year, is. next year, next 10 years. But universities, a lot of universities, Oxford has been around for over 900, maybe a thousand years. Cambridge, oh, yeah. over, over 800 years. So these are very long-standing institutions. And the University of Florida, I believe over a hundred something years. I know. Yeah, right, right around there, right around there. Yeah. So look, when you look at what civilization has to, where it has to go, you know, there are tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of years left to go for human civilization until the sun burns out or to we put ourselves into extinction. Um, not to be grim, but there's a lot, there's a lot of runway left to, to do good, right? There is ab- absolutely there is. I mean, and, and, and you see it whether it's the example of the CEO of Patagonia and the family that only decided, you know, we're going to make this employee stock own company or all these people that are thinking from a corporate perspective that there is a greater responsibility, not just uh, profitability, but we got to do it responsibly because we owe it to the future to take good, good now. That's right. Yeah. And the, um, you know, William McCaskill's, like long-termism uh, really takes that in like in a very literal, literal sense, sense, right? There's right. a lot longer that we have to, uh, to support than just the immediate dozen or so years. And um, there's some really interesting statistics that he, he uses to sort of make his argument, right? Just about just how long we have yeah. to, uh, uh, to, you know, focus on culture change, education change, and, and other long-term vision type projects. And, and one of them, um, which I really enjoyed was his relationship between um, uh, production and output and uh, its relationship to uh, technological advancement. And um, what he says is like the uh, uh, economists measure technological progress in terms of economic growth. Mm-hmm. Because a significant amount of growth can be attributed to the advancement of technology. So we look back when humans were hunter-gatherers, economic growth was near zero, right? As farmers, yeah. it was around 0.1%. And today, the economy is growing 2 to 3% annually, which means that it's doubling roughly every 20, 25 years. So the technological progress and advancement of civilization is, is increasing very, very rapidly. And if we assumed a, a modest growth rate of 2% per year and extrapolate that o- out over 10,000 years, um, like how big would the economy and, and therefore the technology and sort of the education behind it be? Well, the answer that he's concluded is that for every atom within 10,000 light years of Earth, there would be 100 billion trillion current civilizations worth of economic output. That is phenomenal. So what that suggests is that um, because humans have tens or hundreds of millions of years left, and in the next several thousand years, we will have figured it all out. Like, how do we put into place today the institutions, the cultural changes, the the, um, educational changes to ensure the longevity of of like a, a positive and, and, and healthy 
civilization. And I know it's uh, getting a little bit out there. <laughs> like I'm- no, this no, that the, the, are these are important things to think about. I mean, it's nothing happens in a vacuum. I mean, everything that we do today impact the, the future. I mean, if you think uh, of an institution like Cambridge, I mean, my dad went to one of the colleges at Cambridge. And uh, I mean, that you're talking about 1600s is when the, that thing was done and it's still going. Okay, why is that? It's because the people that went there saw that as a vital institution for the future of civilization. So they keep investing back. And it don't just invest back and dump money or uh, you know other resources in a vacuum. They think methodically. How do we go the next a thousand years? I mean, you can pick on institutions uh, uh, around the globe that have existed for a long time. The reason why they always stay at the head of the game is not just because they have the brightest people, but they kind of figure it out that we got to think ten thousand years from now and w- work backwards. What can we do to harness the energy and the wisdom of our our constituents, our alumni, corporate partners, whatever? What can we do to work together to ensure that we're meeting the needs of the society now and in the future? So I, I totally, I totally get get what it's uh, what, what that is going. I mean, I'm really intrigued by this whole uh, effective altruism uh, idea. I'm, I'm gonna have to look up that book and. Uh, and check it out for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's interesting. I'd be, uh, I didn't realize your father went to Cambridge. That's fantastic. Uh, I did my graduate studies at Cambridge and it was, it was an amazing experience because you're living history. Right. Um, and that the joke is that it's, it's very much like Harry Potter, but with less magic and more alcohol. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah. He, he, uh, he, he was in Wesley college at Cambridge and, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, had his uh, undergraduate and graduate education in Tanzania, where my family's from. And then um, he, uh, you know, you're talking about kids from the village who didn't wear shoes until he was in high school, then get a scholarship to go to the state university, and then gets a scholarship to go to Cambridge. Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, you know, it's always a point of pride when I think about the fact that, you know, uh, you know, this guy from the village went to uh, Cambridge University. So who am I to whine about having the hardship going through college, right? <laughs> you know, you can't beat that. Can't beat I love that, that at all. story. Yeah. So uh you you have you also happen to be a donor uh financially uh, to your alma mater. Uh we've we've covered this, but I wanna I wanna ask you from a donor perspective. You you know you donate, we know why you donate because the university resonates with you. But uh let's say uh you've worked with some development professionals, uh you know, people that come and ask you to contribute to your alma mater or other causes. And what would you consider to be the best traits of a development officer that you have worked with? And what did they do that made a difference? And I asked that because a lot of my audience are development professionals, either early in the career or in advanced career. And so this one is specifically targeted to to, to, to that population to help them to understand from somebody who is engaged with the institution, has worked with development officers, uh, you know, what were the, those traits, what are those things that that those development team members that you work with did that made you feel, you know what, hey, these folks are good stewards of my institution and I'm glad to work with them to, uh, to give back. Yeah, I think that uh, the development profession is very much akin to um, 
any sales, like sales in the broadest sense, right? Um, sales for me doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation. It's a very sophisticated, very professional um, role, which is necessary in almost every organization. And the best sellers are those that can communicate value, right? That understand the needs and the individual motivations and challenges of a of either an individual or a business or a team. And they're able to communicate back like how they, how they can help solve, solve those challenges through delivering value, not through right. delivering features. Like a feature may be, oh, well, I can name something after you or whatever yeah, it may be. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the benefit, the value would be like, well, look, here, here's the, the life-changing um, outcomes that you're contributing to, right? And, and so the best development officers are ones that do a lot of listening and that uh, understand sort of the underlying motivations and needs and, and some of the background of the individual and align, you know, the outcomes and the value that a uh, donation may, may contribute to, to that individual. Right. So, like I said, for me, I was, um, you know, first gen student, I received um, financial aid, which enabled me to do my undergraduate studies. Had I not received that financial aid, I, I probably couldn't have attended, right? It would have been a very, very difficult um, uh, decision. But uh, because of financial aid, I was able to go to UF and then on to graduate studies. And, and that had, it was a life-changing opportunity, right? Yeah. And uh, so for me as an individual, that's probably what resonates the strongest. Like, hey, could you imagine like providing this gift to another person and uh, that may be in a similar situation and and that's great. And for another person, it may be very different. Maybe someone who is like really f- drawn in by athletics and that was like their big life-changing experience and like to uh, understand that, to do a lot of listening and a question asking and get to the root of, of, you know, the person's experience and motivations and background can really, really help align, you know, what's going to um, resonate the best with the donor. So uh, let's put on your entrepreneur hat because I've, I've, I've oftentimes had conversations with uh, folks who have, you know, come from wealth or folks who bootstrap themselves and established businesses and things like that. And I found that there are distinct differences between those folks and the, and, and the, and the former. Uh, in, in, in a lot of cases, when I've worked with entrepreneurs, uh, I remember one that I worked with at a different institution years ago. Uh, I mean, this is a person who did not grow up with money, was was a simple engineer and uh, did well. And even after he made hundreds of millions of dollars, he was still working start another company because yeah. he said, "I'll be I'll be too bored if I'm just hanging on, you know, at, you know, on my yacht and going here and there. That life is boring. I still I still can do more." And so when we're working with with that individual, um, their idea of philanthropy was less concerned about. I want something named after me or any of that outward thing. Yeah. It was, it was more so about how can we create more engineers? How can yeah, yeah. I fund this lab to do X? And so you really had to, uh, you know, work in convincing him and, yeah. and give him data as to how is this going to move the needle? Cause I'm not just going to, you know, give you money so you can, you know, flash signs that John Doe did so great and did this, uh, these kind of things. Whereas some of the other folks that I've worked with that, you know, were more well-to-do and they came from legacies, uh, they, they, they're, they're, they're very different in how they uh, per- perceive uh, philanthropy. 
because many of these folks have family foundations and things like that. So I'm just right. curious. I mean, because you're an entrepreneur, so you're in that space. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm on my third company, so it is a bit like uh, like a drug. You you try entrepreneurship once and sort of get bitten bitten by the bug, and then you want to keep doing it over and over again. So I'm on my third company now, and uh, I get it. Um, there are two things that I think drive um, like the conversation with entrepreneurs, myself included. One, as you rightly pointed out, is the data. What is the data saying? Because, uh, um, you know, as a small business leader, um, you know, good intuition and hunches can only get you so far. Uh, and you really have to trust the data to make a lot of decisions. So having good data mm -hmm. should always be at the, the core of the conversation. But the, something else you mentioned, um, which is, is really almost intoxicating for an entrepreneur, which is like, hey, what's the reach that this particular program could have? What's the impact that it could have? What's yeah. the sort of the effort involved and what's the confidence that it can be a reality? And and the reason why I say it's almost intoxicating is because like that's what drives entrepreneurs to launch their next venture. Like they see a, a gap or an opportunity or a need, like, okay, what's the confidence and effort and reach and impact that I think I could have on this space. And if the mental math works out and then the actual math on paper works out, then sort of off to the races. And so approaching it uh, almost as if like it were a business case could be really, really a fun approach for an entrepreneur. When I've worked uh, in the past uh, with academic leaders, oftentimes somebody would come to me and say, I have this project, I need funding for X, Y, and Z. And uh, who do we know that can can work with us? And I say, well, what's the ROI and what what problem is it going to solve? And can you deliver? Because, you know, you're talking to business people and you're talking to uh, if you're talking to entrepreneurs, they're going to want to know that because they're not just sinking money and uh, into a money pit and nothing's ever going to come out of that. And so That's right. it, it it's uh, I, I, you look at many institutions that have been very, very successful in raising billions of dollars. It's because they're solving a problem, whether it is yeah. they're, they're developing a cancer treatment that is working or surgical method, or they found the next Twitter and they, it's, they know that this can be scalable with uh, private investment. And uh, so, you know, entrepreneurs are looking at that as this is an investment in my alma mater, and there's a business that's going to come out of that, and we're going to make money. And from that, I'm going to support my alma mater because they're doing things that are moving the needle. And uh, it's it's kind of hard for people to, to to see it that way. But when you lay it out and then you have the folks meet somebody like yourself and sit down and kind of get that thinking they get to understand, you know, that's why, that's why, uh, you know, people give back. And that's, that, that's what is at the heart of, of, uh, of most people that give back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're, you're touching on a, on a concept that exists in William McCaskill's book around, uh, you know, what's the, you know, how, how can you do the most good throughout your career? A lot of people, um, not all, but many people will earn their entire career. And then, once they've reached a comfortable economic position in life, they'll, they'll donate in, in big chunks, you know, towards the end of their career, uh, or they'll bequeath a bunch of money to a charity uh, when they pass. But um, the argument that's made in this book, or maybe the recommendation is that, you know, maybe we contribute throughout our careers to, um, to charitable causes. Maybe we either do 
one of two things you you sort of set aside maybe a percentage of your your wealth to uh, to donate month over month and year over year and so you're making a big difference throughout the life of your career i think there's a um a charity or a movement called 80,000 hours it's the number of hours that an average um professional will work in their career and so over those 80,000 hours how are you going to make the most good maybe it's by donating a, a percentage of your income maybe it's by actually getting into um a charity or a, a, a space where you can do the most good like if you want to get into um uh, a climate focused charity that like right that does work in deforestation or something like that then you can like seek out career opportunities or or very deliberately choose your academic pursuits based on wanting to have some sort of good in, in those areas so i think that there's a few ways to think about that yeah no that's uh you know you, you're gonna have to drop those uh those book recommendations because I, I like that you know it's uh uh, it reminds me of a donor uh, that I used to, uh, you know, help uh, work with uh, years ago uh, when I worked in Utah. And she has started, you know, giving right after she graduated from college, you know, graduated, was a teacher and will give 20 bucks a month without failure. Now, she came from a very wealthy family, but the way the parents set up the trust was that. They would not see a dime until they got a college degree and they had worked. So it wasn't until their 40s that they'll get uh, access to the wealth. So they went to school and they worked. And she told us to Kim, you know, from day one, I knew I had to do my part. And I gave as much as I could afford. When I got a promotion, that increased over 50 years. And later on, this individual became one of the biggest benefactors of that institution. I mean, they gave millions and millions of dollars that continue to transform that institution, but they started in a small way and yeah. they're very humble about it. And they wanted it to, to really change lives. Like just like their lives have been changed. They wanted to change lives and that's what they did that. And I, I, I just thought that was very admirable you know, that from a generation prior, they were, they were taught the value of altruism and they, they continue and they instill that in their children. So as we, uh, as we uh, kind of get to the tail end of the program here, uh, perhaps you can give uh, our audience uh, two key takeaways about the importance of giving back to one's alma mater. Yeah. Um, there's a couple thoughts here. One is that uh, in the immediate term, like I mentioned, it's a, such a fantastic way to get involved, re-engage your network, um, sort of get the benefit of, of experiences that, that were transformational in, in a younger part of your, your life. And that's, that can be really rewarding, right? Yeah. Uh, so that part is really nice. And, you know, you can um, direct your, your contributions and your funds to the areas that you think are, are most meaningful for you or ha will have the most impact, like, like we talked about for my first generation students for me is a really, really amazing opportunity to give. And the second is that, look, you're investing not now, but you're investing in the future. These students will go on to be the next leaders from a um, you know, non-for-profit, for-profit and, and governmental perspective. And you know, ensuring that they have the best experience, education, 
uh, access to the best tools and professors, um, it's going to make the difference, right? And in right. order to continue, uh, you know, progressing our our institutions, our nation, and indeed the world, um, we're going to need better access and 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 the best tools uh, given to these these future leaders. So, you know, invest now in, in generations down the road, whether it's for your own family or others. I think the, 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 the payoff will be realized. Couldn't have said it better. So before we wrap up here, let's uh, revisit the books. Uh, Effective Altruism, uh, William McCaskill. What's the title of that book? His first book is called Doing Good Better. Doing Good Better by William McCaskill. And the other one? What We Owe the Future. What We Owe the Future, William McCaskill. Folks, if you want to know something about something, what motivates uh, alumni like Damon to uh, give back, not just in, in, in time, but also in treasure, read these books. They'll help you. They'll help you figure it out. And guess what? We're all going to be better human. So, well, there you have it. I'm Kim Naoni. Thanks for tuning in to Mentorship Matters, and we'll see you soon.